Today's episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide. Want to make your next trip unforgettable? There's an easy way to do that. Book a Get Your Guide travel experience. Whether you're into food, nature, culture, sports, immerse yourself in the things that you love on your next vacation. For example, you could check out the Sherlock Holmes tour in London. You could take a pasta making class in Rome, experience the San Diego whale and dolphin watching cruise, or go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. They've got a night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, a New York City street art and graffiti tour. They've even got a Chicago river cruise and architecture tour. Uh, I have to stress that my family went on one of these uh, architecture boat tours of Chicago, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you want to turn to get your guide for. Whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And today we're bringing you an episode from The Vault. This is part two of our series on the reptiles of the Galapagos. This was originally published December 10th, 2022. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on the reptiles of the Galapagos Islands. Now, in the previous episode, we focused mainly on the marine iguana, or as uh, as they were often referred to early on, those hideous creatures, <laughs> those stupid, awful, sluggish lizards. Uh, we, we, we mounted a defense of the a marine iguana, but today we are here to talk about the Galapagos tortoise. And I wanted to kick things off by reading a passage uh, from Charles Darwin in The Voyage of the Beagle. Darwin, of course, was not just a great scientist, but a really wonderful writer. And I think this, this uh, will help set the scene. So uh, are you ready to hear about Darwin's uh, first vision of San Cristobal Island, then, then what they called Chatham Island? Yeah, let's, let's hear from, from old Charles. And th- this is part of a narrative of uh, when he slept ashore one night on the island. So off the boat. Uh, Darwin writes, The entire surface of this part of the island seems to have been permeated like a sieve 
by the subterranean vapors. Here and there the lava, whilst soft, has been blown into great bubbles, and in other parts the tops of caverns similarly formed have fallen in, leaving circular pits with steep sides. From the regular form of the many craters, they gave to the country an artificial appearance, which vividly reminded me of those parts of Staffordshire where the great iron foundries are most numerous. The day was growing hot, and the scrambling over the rough surface and through the intricate thickets was very fatiguing, but I was well repaid by the strange cyclopean scene. As I was walking along, I met two large tortoises, each of which must have weighed at least 200 pounds. One was eating a piece of cactus, and as I approached, it stared at me and slowly walked away. The other gave a deep hiss and drew in its head. These huge reptiles, surrounded by the black lava, the leafless shrubs, and large cacti, seemed to my fancy like some antediluvian animals. The few dull-colored birds cared no more for me than they did for the great tortoises. So Darwin, transported to a time from before Noah's flood by the vision <laughs> of these bizarre, gigantic tortoises crawling around on the, uh, on the lava. Yes, uh, this is a great scene he paints here. And, um, uh, and yeah, as I mentioned in the first episode, I was, I was fortunate enough to get to travel to uh, the Galapagos Islands uh, just a couple of months ago. And San Cristobal Island was one of the islands that I got to visit. And uh, this was pretty much the, the, the experience I had uh, with my family walking through one of the, um, uh, the areas they had set aside for these magnificent tortoises. Uh, they're just, they, they just, they walk around as if, yeah, as if you, you don't matter, unless you get a little too close for their liking, in which case there'll often be this hiss and this retraction of their head. I mean, their heads don't retract in the same way that, say, a box turtle does, but they're able to sort of pull their head in a bit. Mm -hmm. But the, the hissing that Darwin is describing here, it does have a very, I don't know, pneumatic kind of quality to it. It, feel, it sounds like some sort of machinery. Um, and indeed, that's, that's kind of more what it is, as opposed to like a, the hiss you might hear from a, a house cat or something. And one of the, the things uh, that I kept thinking about while encountering them is that they already move with this kind of herky-jerky kind of um, locomotion. They already move like they are elaborate mechanical creatures created for um, you know, like practical effects for a 1990s uh, science fiction feature. And then they also make this hissing sound uh, to move part of their anatomy. So it, it almost creates this feeling of, am I re seeing real animals or is this an elaborate hoax? Uh, these animatronics, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they they feel almost like animatronics, but of course they're 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 quite alive and they're quite. But that's that's part of their strangeness and they, they just the awe of watching these giant creatures walk around, slowly eat, and occasionally have uh, some startling interactions. No, I'm I'm greatly envious of the opportunity you got to see these animals in person, but I trust that you did not do what Darwin did upon encountering these beasts and try to ride them. Absolutely not. No. no. <laughs> there the the only time the times we were forced to get uncomfortably close was one of these situations is the area that we were walking through had a path mm -hmm. and you're supposed to stay on the path and keep your distance from the, the tortoises. Sometimes, though, the tortoises will just get on the path, and yeah. <laughs> you have to find your way around them, and uh, they don't necessarily uh, like that. But no, we, we kept our distance, um, 
and uh, and you want to keep your distance because yeah, if you get a little too close, they're going to stop interacting with their environment for a little bit, and you don't want to watch that. You want to watch them eat and and rampage around, and uh, you know occasionally um, have these fabulous stare downs between two males. Which uh, I don't know. We may we may describe this later, so uh, maybe I shouldn't get into that just yet. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about the mock fights uh, later on. So the Galapagos tortoise is. I think you would say uh, originally the dominant land herbivore of the Galapagos Islands, which makes them kind of unique because there's pretty much nowhere nowhere else on Earth now where the dominant land herbivore is a reptile. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- these are very unique and beautiful creatures. And the Galapagos tortoise stands out so much among the endemic fauna that it's actually the origin of the archipelago's name in one way or another. There's a little bit of nitpicking on that, but uh, basically it goes like this. Uh, By the 1570s, these islands had already appeared on uh, at least a couple of European maps. The one I saw named was by a Flemish cartographer named Abraham Ortelius, and uh, it named the islands Insulae de los Galapagos, or meaning Islands of the Tortoises. Now, the the nitpicking about the terminology I've read is what exactly the word Galapago or Galapagos originally meant. Uh, according to a book that I'm going to reference uh, multiple times in this episode, Galapagos and Natural History, second edition by John Creature and uh, Kevin Laughlin from Princeton University Press. That edition's out just 2022. They write that the origin of the name of the islands is an old Spanish word, Galapago, which was a name for a specific type of saddle. So there's like, you know, a saddle you'd use on a horse, I guess, that has a kind of upturned front mm-hmm. that was a Galapago. And some, but not all of the Galapagos tortoises have saddle-shaped shells. Uh, others have a more straightforward dome. And we can talk about the evolutionary reasons for those differences later on. But when Tomas de Berlanga landed on the islands in 1535, a story we talked about in the previous episode, Uh, After this, he wrote a letter to the king in which he observed, uh, describing the animals of the island, he observed muchos lobos marinos, meaning many sea lions, tortugas, meaning sea turtles, iguanas, and galapagos. And the authors write that this is probably a reference to the tortoises and their saddle-shaped shells rather than to literal saddles being on the island. This is a solid observation that, that thankfully still holds true today. Muchos lobos, uh, marinos, and tortugas, <laughs> iguanas, and, uh, and and tortoises. Yes. Yeah. The sea lion. I mean, the the mucho lobos marinos. Uh, it, that was probably the most astounding of all. When you're near the the coast, because they're everywhere, and they'll you know they're sometimes laying. Uh, there'll be like a a male that's come up, and he's like laying in the street, <laughs> yeah. or and they they love park benches. Uh, they, they're a lot of fun to watch. Well, the difference in the Spanish name, I guess if it's Lobo Marino, that would mean sea wolf, not sea lion, right? But that mm-hmm. that heightens the kind of implicit comedy of naming these animals after what you would think of as a more actively voracious land predator. Whereas, you know, I guess when they're on land, they're not quite so threatening as maybe a wolf or a lion would seem. Yeah, I mean, well, on one hand, you, yeah, you have some of the little tiny islands uh there's at least one that's named for the wolves for the lobos and of course that's why because sea lions are hanging out there and yeah on the on the on the beach they're, they're often quite docile and you see people getting way too close to them in some cases oh, but no. the big males of course are very territorial about hanging on to their bit of property and their um and their females 
you know, their, their, their beach real estate. Mm-hmm. And so they're, of course, always, they're continuously, loudly um, uh, sending the alarm and occasionally chasing off other males. So there's, there's a lot of drama if you just sit back and watch uh, the, the sea lions. And I imagine that uh, we, listeners from other parts of the world can attest to this as well. Yes, yes. Keep your distance, folks. I mean, uh, observe, but uh, but there's no reason to get in a sea lion space. Though sometimes, in my experience, a sea lion will come for your space. I was just <laughs> seated away from sea lions, and then here comes this female, and she's just howling about something and insists on taking my spot on a log. And I'm like, it's yours, it's yours. And then she just okay. hangs out on the log for a few minutes and then leaves it. I don't know. <laughs> she's just trying to make a point. Uh, so if you have never seen the Galapagos tortoises before, you can easily find lots of pictures of them. But to briefly describe the adults, there are uh, many different uh, species scattered across the different islands. Maybe we can get into the exact numbers on that in a bit. But generally what they all have in common is that they're very large. They have large shells, uh, some species with rounded dome tops, others with the saddle shape that Berlanga probably observed, which are typically turned up in the front to have a kind of uh, big notch uh, above the animal's head and neck. They have long, dry, wrinkly necks, which are surprisingly slim, almost, I dare say, snake-like in a way. Mm Mm-hmm. They have blunt, round snouts and a, a beak-like mouth with no teeth. And everywhere you can see their their skin in between the shell parts, there is typically a lot of leathery, wrinkly flesh, which just makes them look like old people. Yeah, they they have this kind of appearance of a, of a cute, shriveled old person face. Uh, they're they're very they're very sweet to to look at. Um, it's 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 kind of hard to to not anthropomorphize them as such even and, and that can of course can become complicated when you start considering like the full range of their um of their lifestyle and the way that they um they, they live and reproduce and so forth uh it, it never pays to anthropomorphize creatures too much yeah now one thing many of us today might not appreciate even if you go to the galapagos today or if you see you know good uh, nature documentary footage from there is how many tortoises there were when people first arrived before the animals had any natural predators other than the threat posed to hatchlings by the Galapagos hawk. Uh, this place was swarming with tortoises and to try to get a picture of that, uh, I-, I wanted to cite some, some basically math work that creature and Laughlin do in their book. So they're talking about the reproductive uh, rates of these tortoises. So they say, if uh, if a female tortoise has more than two young that survive into adulthood, the tortoise population will grow. Uh, so she has replaced both her and her mate. And if she has more than one, the, the population will grow. And they say, now consider that a female tortoise may conservatively lay five to ten eggs annually for perhaps 80 years or more. Mm. So just uh, for a very conservative estimate... They say, okay, imagine she averages one annual clutch and there's just three eggs in it. That's kind of a small estimate, but there's just three eggs per clutch. That's more than 200 eggs in a single adult female tortoise's lifetime. Uh, They say realistically, the number is probably a multiple of that. So they're going to have a lot of young and they're before humans arrive and bring their invasive species with them before they bring dogs and pigs and stuff. There is not significant predation at any 
life cycle, a part of the life cycle of a tortoise. Uh, there's some minor predation by like hawks of the babies, but most of them are going to grow and become reproducing adults. Yeah, it's pretty ama- amazing. I, I asked one of the, the guides about, you know, how long are the, the females reproductive? Because you see some very, uh, he was point that my guide here was pointing out the various really old tortoises, but you, cause you can sort of tell by looking at the shells, the way that, um, the line, like for a while you can sort of, it's not like you can count the rings exactly, but you can sort of see, uh, uh the rings and the, um, uh, the patterns on their shell, but eventually mm-hmm. there's kind of like a smoothing out that occurs. And those are the really old ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, the guide was like, yeah, we're, we're, we're not entirely sure, but it, it seems like they're reproductively active for pretty much most of their lives, which is yeah. pretty astounding. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. Oh, my friends love it. I love that it's kid-safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. And so the authors of this book end up concluding that uh, before humans arrived and, and brought these invasive predators with them and started harvesting the tortoises themselves, which is a sad fact we'll talk about in a moment, um, the tortoises were just just profuse. They were everywhere. Uh, they say there's a conservative estimate of a total population of 250,000 tortoises just on this small group of islands. 
But of course, today, um, all of these tortoise populations are at least vulnerable, and some are up to critically endangered. And, and that's after uh, a significant bounce back in some cases for, you know, after conservation efforts kicked in. So what happened to these tortoises? Well, one thing that happened is, uh, is something Darwin talks about in his passage in Voyage of the Beagle. Before he even really gets to ecological observations about the tortoises, he writes at length about people eating them. So in describing the small human colony on what was then Charles Island, what today is called Floriana Island, so Darwin writes, in the woods, there are many wild pigs and goats. Uh, now, remember, those are not native to the islands, but introduced by humans. Uh, Darwin goes on, but the staple article of animal food is supplied by the tortoises. Their numbers have, of course, been greatly reduced in this island, but the people yet count on two days hunting, giving them food for the rest of the week. It is said that formerly single vessels have taken away as many as 700, and that the ship's company of a frigate some years since brought down in one day 200 tortoises to the beach. And this brings us to a very sad fact about the human use of tortoises here, that tortoises were, of course, very good meat sources for sailing vessels. Um, but this was especially due to the fact that because turtles have a very slow metabolism, they could be loaded into the ship alive and then would survive for an extremely long time without food or water in the hold. And it's important to remember that, of course, ships at the time didn't have refrigerators or freezers or other sophisticated food preservation techniques beyond things like, you know, the nuclear option, salting. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is quite sad to, to picture because on, on one hand, it's it's not like these tortoises were wandering around on deck. No, they, yeah, they were stuffed below, I think generally upside down and just stored away as living casks of food, uh, because they could live for up to a year without food or water, which is just crazy to think about, but also just unimaginably cruel to imagine them down there. And on, on top of this, one of the other troublesome things about this for the tortoises is that the sailors would tend to grab the tortoises they could easily carry back to the ship, which meant that they tended to focus on the smaller tortoises and leave the bigger ones. This meant that they were favoring female tortoises over male tortoises, and I guess to a certain extent also younger male tortoises, but certainly skewing more towards female tortoises, thus destabilizing the species even more than if they had managed more of a 50-50 split between the tortoise genders. Yeah. So unfortunately, a lot of tortoises were removed from the islands that way, but also they just remained a, uh, a live meat source uh, for hunting by the locals. And Darwin tells many interesting stories about this. Uh, for example, he writes about a time that he went uh, up to one of the highland regions of one of the islands and he hung out in a hovel that had been built by two men there who, were, uh, who spent their, their time hunting tortoises. And so he he visits these guys and he sleeps there in the hovel one night. Um, and what did he eat while he was there? Well, exclusively tortoise meat. That was the entire menu about which he says, quote, the breastplate roasted as the gauchos do carne con cuero, which uh, I think means uh, meat with leather with the flesh on it is very good. And the young tortoises make excellent soup. But otherwise, the meat, to my taste, is indifferent. Oh, well, there you go. Also taking the harvesting the young tortoises. That's great as well. 
But they apparently these these the adult tortoises are an amazing food source because of their immense size. And Darwin recounts a story told to him by a Mister Lawson, who uh, is an Englishman who was vice governor of the Charles Island colony, saying that some tortoises, when caught, required six to eight men just to lift them off the ground and would provide up to two hundred pounds of meat. Darwin also later describes a strange operation performed by the hunters. He says that you know they didn't always kill a tortoise he said that uh while the tortoise's meat is used both fresh and salted uh the, the tortoises are also important for providing oil that's right reptile lard and uh oil that i think could be used for for food purposes but also for uh just like 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 lamp purposes i believe yeah it's uh, it's said that in the the old days the larger towns of the galapagos would have their streets would have been lit with tortoise oil Bizarre, though I guess we're more familiar with that from like whale oil and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so if if a tortoise will not provide enough oil, it is apparently not worth killing to the hunters. So Darwin writes, "Quote: When a tortoise is caught, the man makes a slit in the skin near its tail so as to see inside its body whether the fat under the dorsal plate is thick. If it's not, the animal is liberated, and it is said to recover soon from this strange operation." In order to secure the tortoise, it is not sufficient to turn them like a turtle, for they are often able to get on their legs again. And I think this is something that will come up later, because uh, there are some situations where these tortoises often do end up flipped on their backs, even under natural circumstances, and they need to be able to flip back over and and get back to business. I did not get to see that happen. Uh, Thankfully, I don't want to see a tortoise in distress. No, we're not going to ask you the, the, the quiz from the Blade Runner test. So what do these tortoises eat to grow so big? Uh, well, it turns out in reality, they just, they eat plants. These are entirely herbivorous creatures. There are turtles and tortoises uh, that eat other things, but uh, these, these tortoises are entirely plant eaters. And so especially in the lowlands, especially the, uh, the saddleback tortoises will eat uh, succulent cactus. This is something Darwin identifies. He says they especially favor the cactus if they live in the low and arid parts of the islands where there is little or no water. Of course, the cactus becomes a principal water source, uh, but also they eat tree leaves and berries as well as green lichen. Uh, and their diet somewhat depends on which species they are and which part of the islands, which microclimate they inhabit. Like the ones that live higher up in the uh, the highlands with more lush vegetation probably feed on more leafy stuff. And the ones that live more in the arid regions probably feed on more cactus. Yeah, the ones I got to actually observe uh in the in the wild uh as it were on san cristobal and on santa cruz island they um they were definitely eating the the leafy green stuff uh, but i got to see plenty of the the cacti which of course have coexisted with the tortoises long enough that they have uh they have particular adaptations like they have been changed by uh cohabitation with the tortoise as well and the most remarkable of these are the ones that uh that basically seem to grow up like trees and then branch out because they're trying to reach an they're reaching an optimal height at which they're uh, hopefully above the uh, the reach of the tortoise there is one type of cactus that there's a great picture of in this book by creature and laughlin i've been talking about it's called a candelabra cactus and i thought it was beautiful because the branches look to me uh, like giant green tarantula legs. They, mm-hmm. they kind of have these lobes that look like little hairy leg segments on a large spider. 
Yeah, yeah, and this is a nice picture too because you got a you got a flamingo in there. Um, I did get to see a few flamingos uh, on uh, Seymour Island, I believe. But the tortoises just generally seem to eat all kinds of foods that would look to us quite hostile. So, of course, the uh, the ones in the lowlands are going to eat a lot of cactus, uh, but they also apparently eat plenty of poison apple or manzanillo, which mm-hmm. is toxic. It has uh, sap that is poisonous to other creatures, but uh, and I think it can uh, can cause blistering if you touch it. But apparently, the the tortoises just chow down on this stuff. It doesn't bother them. Yeah, on on San Cristobal Island, uh, the area where we were encountering the tortoises, they had signs everywhere. Do not touch the apples. Do not, certainly do not eat the apples. Uh, Leave this to the tortoises. Now, coming back to Darwin's writing on the tortoises, he also observes their relationship with water. He says they're notable, of course, for their ability to survive without water for a very long time. But when they get access to water, they they go hog wild. They love it. They love <laughs> the spring water and the mud puddles. They'll just get in there and and settle in, uh, for sometimes for days at a time. And when they when they're drinking, they will just gulp huge mouthfuls of water for a long time. And Darwin even th- this leads into him writing a really bizarre anecdote that I had to share. So he says, quote, for some time after a visit to the springs, their urinary bladders are distended with fluid, which is said to gradually uh, which is said to gradually decrease in volume and to become less pure. The inhabitants, when walking in the lower district and overcome with thirst, often take advantage of this circumstance and drink the contents of the bladder if full. In one tortoise I saw killed, the fluid was quite limpid and had only a very slightly bitter taste. The inhabitants, however, always first drink the water in the pericardium, which is the the membrane, I believe, uh, surrounding the heart tissue, uh, which is described as being best. So that's right. Drinking the water from a tortoise's heart or from a tortoise's bladder and Darwin tasted the tortoise bladder water. I guess I should be happy for this that they're using all parts of the tortoise conceivably in doing this. But of course this is still kind of sad to imagine. Yeah. But also from just a purely anatomical uh, level, this is of course amazing. Now Darwin uh, goes on to talk about how impressed he is by the long determined journeys that some of these tortoises make between uh, he, he believes what the the point of these journeys is is between highland water sources and usual breeding grounds in the lower districts. Uh, I don't know if that holds up as the main reason for these journeys today, uh, though I do think some of these uh, tortoises do make journeys between the highlands and the lowlands for uh, the purpose of depositing eggs. The females do after mating season, but there are also journeys I think having to do with with food resources and the different seasons and so forth. But anyway, Darwin says, you know, although the tortoises are pretty slow in their movements, you would be surprised how much ground they cover over time due to sheer determination. He estimates that they're going to move 60 yards in 10 minutes, which is 360 yards in an hour or about four miles a day. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And of course, nowadays, of course, everything has been shifted around a bit. Uh, you know, all these invasive species, not only the, the you know, such harmful invasive species as uh, uh, pigs, 
and uh, and goats uh, that were introduced, and, and then their populations have been dealt with to varying degrees. But you also have, of course, have plants to think about. Um, and so, in some cases, you have things like uh, berries that are that are now grown in the Galapagos and may occur wild in some cases. And of course, the tortoises love those, even though they are not native. And so, you may see that. Uh, interfere with their their movements a bit, but yeah, basically through modern conservation and through modern tracking technology, you can actually see all of these tortoise movements plotted out on maps, and it's quite impressive. Um, I think their their movements in these cases help illustrate why they're so crucial for the island ecosystem that they thrive in. They eat so much, and while they're slow, they do cover a lot of ground and defecate to spread speeds, uh, see, spread seeds rather. Uh, and this is very much in line with other megafauna that you encounter uh, in, in, in other ecosystems, as well as the, the, the remember, uh, if you think back to our episode on, or episodes on the giant moa bird, uh, which of course is extinct, but would have, we still see like the footprint of their uh, ecological importance uh, in the areas that they occupied because they were vital for uh, consuming plants and then spreading those those seeds through defecation. Yeah, uh, there is a great passage in the book by Creature and Laughlin where they talk about the importance of the tortoise in spreading uh, a type, a species of wild Galapagos tomato plant, mm-hmm. uh, which apparently it, it only, the seeds only germinate under very specific conditions, such as being exposed to acid for a long period of time now how does that happen well it happens in the digestive system of the tortoise so like they take this in the seed uh, gets exposed to the acid within the digestive juices and then it gets it travels with the tortoise a long ways away from its original uh, location so that's also good for dispersal and then once the tortoise poops it out it of course has a bunch of nutritious uh, fecal matter surrounding it to help it grow yeah yeah i've got i, I did get to poke uh, some some tortoise dung with a stick. My son and I did, and we got to to look all in there. It's uh, uh you know quite fascinating. Um, uh, I think some stats would really help drive home though why the tortoise is so great at this. Uh, and uh, I got these from Seed Dispersal by Galapagos Tortoises by Blake et al. Published in the Journal of Biogeography from 2012. So in this particular survey, the researchers looked at 120 fresh dung piles in both agricultural and national parkland. They found seeds from more than 45 plant species in these dung piles, 11 of which were from introduced species, you know, like various berries and whatnot. A per tortoise average of 464 seeds and 2.8 species per dung pile was detected. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting because, okay, we've already established that, yes, they eat a lot, they travel farther than you might think, but uh, how, how long does it take for them to process their food? Uh, things go a little slower with, uh, with the Galapagos tortoises. The mean digesta retention time for a tortoise is 12 days, but 28-day retention times have been reported. So that's the, that's the time it takes for the food that they've consumed to process through their body and become dung. So they can really cover some ground in that time. Yeah, during that time, according to this paper, the tortoise may travel between 394 and 4,355 meters. On the high end, that's 2.7 miles or 4.3 kilometers. So you can see how these tortoises would play an incredibly important role in helping the reproduction and dispersal of local flora. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with any, as with any species, they don't—they're not existing in isolation in their ecosystem. They—they they have a role. They have a—they they have a, a place in it. And if uh, if you disrupt them, if you disrupt their numbers, or in the, the very worst case scenarios, if they uh, their extinction is brought about, uh, then there is a there, there's something missing. There's a you end up pulling the the carpet out from everything. And unlike uh, with with the parlor trick, uh, all the plates and the dishes are not necessarily going to stay standing up. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. Oh, my friends love it. I love that it's KidSafe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Now, uh, we've been talking about a lot of the uh, predation and, and hunting of these tortoises, but barring that, how do tortoises die? What happens? Uh, well, Darwin writes, quote, the young tortoises, as soon as they are hatched, fall prey in great numbers to the carrion feeding buzzard. Uh, I think that would actually be referring probably to the, the Galapagos hawk, um, unless he's talking about some other uh, species that, that came in after humans uh, arrived. But and Darwin goes on, the old ones seem to die generally from accidents, as from falling down precipices. At least several of the inhabitants told me that they never found one dead without some evident cause, which, ooh, that kind of gave me a shiver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 just impressive how long they, they live. Um, the, uh, now, to the first point about predation, it's worth pointing out that the tortoise sanctuaries that are up and running now, they, they care for the little ones to protect them from you know not only the hawk but also all these these uh these introduced species that may be about um once they 
get big enough though, yeah, there's, there's only really three ways they're going to die. Old age, eventually, um, accident, uh, vehicular, especially, of course, being the, the main threat though, um, uh, the, you know, on the Galapagos Islands today, a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, you know, laws and messaging, um, have been put in place to prevent this from occurring. And then of course, in the past, uh, human hunting was the big thing. Now, you mentioned they can die of old age. Of course, they do. But that can take a good long while. Uh, I was reading about this in, in uh, Creature in Laughlin, and uh, they, they say that it's possible, though we have no way to know for sure, that there may be tortoises still alive on the islands that, that were present when Darwin visited in 1835. And uh, a Galapagos tortoise named Harriet lived to an estimated age of 175 before she died in an Australian zoo in 2006. So they can live a long, long time. Yeah, I was I was doing some crunching on this as well. I think one of the sources I was looking at had, uh, had listed like 171 years as being like one of the, uh, the, the 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 oldest stages known for the the tortoises. And even if you're just going to go go with that, uh, if you consider the idea that you have a tortoise born in 1835 when Darwin is visiting, if it lived 171 years, it would live to the year 2006. Wow, which is just crazy to think about the idea that just one tortoise lifetime would bridge our time to the time of Darwin, and that a single tortoise lifetime could encompass basically the, the two worst centuries of uh, the, the impact of humanity on uh, Galapagos tortoise numbers as well. Now, again, not to come back too much to the, um, the, the horrors of, of human tortoise interaction, but yeah, there are these uh, accounts you read too of like times when uh, roads to various villages were just lined with uh, like the, the the bones or the shells of of these creatures, um, it was uh, it was a rough time to be a Galapagos tortoise. Yes, uh, no, I now I think it's worth talking about uh, Galapagos tortoise mating and reproduction, in which there's some interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one thing, I was reading about. Uh, uh, maybe we can get to the actual mating in a minute, but first, I was reading a section in uh in creature in laughlin about the nests and egg laying of the galapagos tortoise so mating season typically occurs uh during the rainy season and after having mated a female tortoise will generally travel toward the arid lowlands to build a nest darwin has a section about this where he correctly observes that they will seek out arid sandy soil to dig a nest in but then he says other he says sometimes they will just drop their eggs wherever like in a precipice like in a crevice in the rocks uh, i didn't find any other evidence of that so maybe that was true when he was there but uh, I'm, I'm not aware of other evidence for that other than what darwin says but mm. uh, generally what they do is they're going to dig down in the arid regions now and for the saddleback tortoises, which tend to live more in the lowlands, this is not much of a trip. But for the domed tortoises, it can be a really great journey down from the highlands into the place where they're going to lay the uh, lay the eggs. And the eggs are laid sometime between June and December. A clutch can contain anywhere from like two to twenty eggs. The eggs are sort of billiard ball sized, or maybe a little bit larger. And the nest building process is what interested me because apparently it involves a good bit of pee. So the tortoise will find a spot in the soil and she will dig a hole about 30 centimeters deep, scooping the earth out with her hind legs. And this is a, a an involved process that can take up to about 12 hours. And the tortoise will often urinate on the soil in order to soften it for digging. 
But the mother tortoise, after she lays her eggs in the hole and covers it up, then also pees on the soil again to form a kind of cement layer in it. This is interesting. We've 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 discussed a number of different um, like nest building, egg laying uh, scenarios over the years, but I don't remember one that was so urine intensive. Yeah, I, there may be other species that do pea cement, but this is the first time I remember reading about this. Uh, so anyway, uh, the, the eggs incubate in the cemented earth for like four to eight months, uh, where the sex of the hatchling is ultimately determined by the temperature at which the egg incubates. That's kind of interesting. It's not uh, chromosomally determined as it is for some other animals. And uh, so afterwards, they, they dig their way out of the nest to begin their lives. And of course, this is the most vulnerable time for a Galapagos tortoise uh, when they're a hatchling. But they, uh, the ones that survive make it out. They, they find food, they avoid predators, and they eventually grow up. Though apparently the growing up also takes a good bit of time. The tortoises do everything pretty slow, including reaching maturity. I, I've read that they don't reach sexual maturity until several decades later. The, the mating itself is also uh, kind of interesting uh, because the, it's, it basically consists of the males chasing the females around until they can corner them. Uh, but then there's also, uh, given that these are large shelled creatures, uh, the male's shell has like an indention on the bottom that allows for it to mount the female. Uh, because otherwise, like unless there was some r- arrangement of the shells in this capacity, th- they would not be compatible. Right. And uh, there was also a, a fact I came across that I thought was funny in, in this book. They talk about uh, how the larger size of the Galapagos tortoise can make the physical act of mating sometimes kind of cumbersome and laborious. And uh, the authors note that, quote, males often slide off, sometimes even inadvertently landing upside down, at which point they must right themselves and try again, which I don't know <laughs> if it's juvenile that I found that funny, but I did. The authors also note that uh, the, the male tortoises sometimes get confused. For example, they try to mate with large rocks. Oh. <laughs> well, that's just in and of itself funny. We, we can't help but laugh at that. But there's also uh, surprising for these very slow moving animals. There is some surprisingly fierce competition between males for access to mates. And Darwin notes this. He says during breeding season, you can hear the males emit what he calls a horse roar. And I, I think this roar is uh, probably indicative of, of male-on-male competition, which sometimes leads to these mock fights where, where they will raise their necks up at each other. Rob, I think you actually maybe saw one of these going on. Yes, I got to see this happen, and I actually got to film it. Uh, I was able to. Uh, my, my wife was like, "Quick, get your get your camera out. Make sure you're getting this." And so I did. Uh, yeah, it's amazing to watch because you'll have these two lumbering giants that are kind of on a on a collision course with each other and you're like what's going to happen what's going to happen and then as they get closer they'll both rear their heads up and they'll have this showdown that doesn't it does not come to blows or bites or anything like that but it is a competition to see who to determine who is the tallest mm-hmm. and the tallest tortoise who the one that can raise its head up the highest he's the winner and the other one accepts defeat and carries on yeah. and that's that's as violent as it seems to get but it's it's spectacular to watch and yeah this was the the finest nature footage uh, i have ever uh, captured or will ever capture now one last thing i wanted to read from darwin here where he's talking about the tortoise's reaction to humans this is another infamous section from the uh, the voyage of the beagle chapter 
Darwin says, I was always amused when overtaking one of these great monsters as it was quietly pacing along to see how suddenly the instant I passed, it would draw in its head and legs and uttering a deep hiss fall to the ground with a heavy sound as if struck dead. I frequently got on their backs and then giving a few raps on the hinder part of the shells, they would rise up and walk away. But I found it very difficult to keep my balance. Oh, Charles. No. What are you doing? Why are you riding a tortoise? <laughs> um, I mean, it is kind of, I, I mean, uh, it, 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 the, the, based on this account, the tortoise is doing exactly what, uh, you know, I observed and all these sources say they do if someone gets too close or something gets too close. But it is kind of interesting, this added detail that apparently eventually the tortoise is like, okay, I guess this weird British man is not going away. <laughs> I have things to do and places to be. I'm just going to start walking around with him on there and maybe I can sort of shake him off. Yeah. And this is actually not an isolated report. Again, we are not recommending riding the tortoises, but other, other people talk about how, well, you can get on their backs and ride them and they'll just go about their business. And this is apparently a common occurrence. Um, there was a common occurrence back in the day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they say you can get two people on one of these tortoise shells and just ride them and they'll do their thing. Like the, you know, they don't seem, uh, they don't seem bothered. Now, I'm sure that puts extra strain on their muscles and their energy requirements and all that. So it's not like okay to do, but like just showing the strength of the tortoise and how powerful and huge this animal is that it could just continue on its way trying to graze with like multiple humans riding on its back. Oh, poor creatures. <laughs> um, yeah, again, do not do not attempt to don't do not get close to the tortoises and do not ride them. Now, we have a, f- a fair amount of variety with uh, the Galapagos tortoises. They're all of the genus Chelonitis. And you get into some discussion about um, the different varieties, like the exact variety count. Uh, and then uh, we have two that are definitely extinct. Uh, there's the um, uh, Floriana Island subspecies that's thought to have been hunted to extinction by, I think, 1850. When Darwin visited, this is, I believe, the one where he only describes seeing their bones. Uh, the Pinta Island species is extinct as of 2012 with the death of Lonesome George, who was, of course, famous for being the, the, the last of his variety. Um, uh, he died, and that was seemingly it for this variety of tortoise. Yeah, I've read that there are either 12 or 13 extant uh, species. Yeah. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. (laughs) I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. Oh, my friends love it. I love that it's kid-safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. So coming back uh, to the the challenges that Tauruses face during the the age of humans, uh, we've we've ser- th- thoroughly discussed. I think the, the human hunting and human harvesting of tortoises, uh, at least for our purposes here. Um, but of course, there are all these invasive uh, species that humans introduced. And while we are dealing with cases in, in some cases where you'll have animals directly going after young tortoises, uh, there are also other ways that the, that these creatures. Uh, were harmful and are and can still be harmful to the native Galapagos tortoises. Right. And in fact, one example of this came up in some uh, episodes we did back in October on goats, right? The the issue mm-hmm. of goats competing for resources with tortoises. That's right. Uh, again, goats, as we discussed, are uh, amazing at what they do at uh, roaming around, finding odd bits of ve- vegetation to uh, consume. And yeah, they're they're ultimately better at it than tortoises. They're more thorough than the tortoises and uh, and, and ultimately so thorough that they can be even more disruptive to like the uh, uh, to the ground itself, uh, like, you know, getting in there and uh, actually uh, making it unstable. Uh, so that's that's one thing to consider. Also, when you're dealing with any creature that lays its eggs in the ground, uh, not only do you have to worry with certain species, like especially pigs and rats going after those eggs and then going after uh, the, the young potentially, uh, you also have to deal with cattle because uh, there are, are still cattle on the, on the islands and cattle were brought to the islands. And cattle aren't interested in really eating those tor- tortoise eggs, but they will definitely step on those tortoise eggs if mm. they happen to be ranging in the same area. Now, in the previous episode, we talked about some uh, hypotheses about how marine iguanas first arrived on the Galapagos Islands, uh, probably via some kind of rafting from the mainland. Is that also the idea of what likely happened with the ancestral tortoises? That's my understanding, based on the the sources I was looking at and based uh, on, on conversations with uh, with uh, some of the, uh, the the naturalist uh, and guides in, in the Galapagos Islands, uh, the idea is that it would have been much the same. Tortoises in South America swept up in river floods, washed out with vegetation, which they were able to raft on, and uh, and reaching uh, these far flung islands. So it's amazing to imagine these 
extremely unlikely kind of one-off events that allow the population of each island because it's not something you see happening every day but you know all it takes is a is a small seed population to get there and then wow what's this you know there's there's all these food resources and no predators and you can really boom once you arrive yeah and and i'm not sure if the numbers on this are you know, one hundred percent certified, as it were. But uh, it seems like the first Galapagos tortoises probably reached the islands two to three million years ago via rafting. Uh, they would have probably arrived on the eastern islands of Española and uh, San Cristobal first, and then spread west from there. Uh, so it's uh, uh, yeah, it's interesting to think about. Uh, now, the the other question that I guess came up for me. In, the, in this was like, how big were these tortoises when they first arrived? Because at least some sources out there make the case that they were already big, uh, mm-hmm. that they were already, quote unquote, gigantic. Um, while plenty of other sources also discuss Galapagos tortoises uh, as a case of island gigantism. Yeah. So island gigantism is uh, something that often occurs. There's uh, known as island dwarfism and island gigantism, these kind of uh, runaway pressures on the size of animals that can uh, that can really uh, bulk them up or shrink them down when they're on a con- in a contained ecosystem like an island. And I don't think we know exactly what all the pressures would be, but you could imagine something like, well, maybe there is always sexual selection on, say, the size of adult male tortoises to make them bigger and bigger, because the bigger you are, the more likely a female is to be receptive to mating. So there's sexual selection driving them to be bigger, but then there's naturally some kind of other pressure that wants to keep their size smaller, you know, like you... There's that advantage in being bigger, but once you're bigger, maybe you're more at risk of predation or it's harder to thermoregulate or something like that. And you can imagine cases where you get on an island and suddenly those other pressures are relieved. And so you can just keep getting bigger and bigger than you would have been allowed to on the mainland. Yeah, yeah. I guess on the on the on the like supporting the idea that they were already big, there is uh, uh, there is, of course, fossil evidence of of gigantic tortoises existing on, I think, every continent except Australia and Antarctica Hmm. um, at some point in the past. Uh, So it's not like these forms only emerged on on various uh, island environments. But but I I don't know. On the other hand, it seems like plenty of sources are discussing this as gigantism. One paper I was looking at, this is uh, from Jaffe et al., from a 2011 paper in the Royal Society Biology Letters, The Evolution of Island Gigantism and Body Size Variation in Tortoises and Turtles. Um, they point out, they, they do point out that, quote, the evolutionary determinants of size diversity in Chelonians are poorly understood, but they also point out that Chelonians span some four orders of magnitude in their sizes and that there is, quote, a pronounced relationship between habitat and optimal body size. Mm-hmm. Also worth noting that the clo- apparently the closest living relative to the Galapagos tortoise is not a direct uh, ancestor of those tortoises, but it is a re- it is itself a relatively small-bodied uh, variety of tortoise that's found in South America. Hmm. The Chaco tortoise, I believe it is called. Now, I also mentioned that there there are other giant tortoises still in the world outside of the Galapagos. Uh, these would be giant tortoises. Uh, that survived in the Western Indian Ocean in the form of Aldabra giant tortoises. Yeah, and I believe when Darwin arrived, he thought that these were the same species, like that the ones on the Galapagos were the same as those. 
uh, or at least the same as some other island gigantic tortoise he was aware of. I think it would have been those because those are the only other ones I know of. Um, and he, he was mistaken in that. Uh, in fact, that they're just uh, they're different parallel forms of, of gigantic tortoises. Uh, but one last thing I wanted to talk about with these tortoises before we uh, we wrap up today is the differences in the shell shapes, uh, because we, we mm-hmm. mentioned earlier that some species have more dome shaped shells and some have these saddle shaped shells. And uh, there are also intermediate species that have that sort of somewhere in between. Uh, a creature and Laughlin have a, a great section on this in their chapter on the tortoises, and uh, and I wanted to talk about it a bit. So one of the questions is why uh, you can observe some things that might lead to these differences. The tortoises with the domed shells tend to live more in the highlands and around caldera rims, where vegetation is much thicker and and lush all the time. Whereas the uh, ones with the saddleback shells tend to live more or even exclusively in the lowlands where conditions are more often dry. Of course, the differences in these shells is that, uh, well, as the domed ones are more just kind of like an upturned cup over the, uh, over the reptile's back, the saddleback tortoises, uh, their shell tends to have like a, a relief area above the head and neck. It's almost like a, like a collar that's pulled back. And there are some other differences too. The domed tortoises tend to have a larger body size, but shorter legs and necks. Whereas the saddleback tortoises tend to be smaller overall, but have longer legs and longer necks. Now, I remember in the last episode when we talked about the uh, the marine iguanas and we were trying to come up with the uh, the biological explanation for why the iguana kept returning out of the water after Darwin threw it in, even though, you know, it's got to go in the water all the time to, to, to eat. So why doesn't it just stay in the water to stay away from him? Uh, and the answer we came up with that the Darwin did not land on himself is that it's probably for uh, thermoregulation reasons because the water is cold and it was removing heat from the iguana's body and the iguana needs to get back up on land to heat back up. I think a, a good explanation for or one of the explanations for the different body plans of these different tortoises probably also has to do with reptile thermoregulation, with the the, uh, regulation of body temperature. Because, of course, animals with a larger body volume also tend to retain more heat because they have less surface area proportional to their volume. So if you're living in a cold place and you're trying to retain body heat, it's easier to do that if you're bigger. You've got there's just more body in there and less uh, relatively less surface area and vice versa. It's easier to cool off if you're smaller because a bigger percent of your body is surface area that you can lose heat through. This would seem to correlate with the observation that the domed tortoises, which live up in the highlands where it tends to be a little bit cooler, tend to have a larger body size, but also shorter legs and necks, so less extremities poking out that can lose heat. Whereas the saddleback tortoises tend to be smaller overall with longer legs and longer necks, and they live down in the lowlands where things tend to be hotter. Yeah, yeah. Now, most of the, the tortoises I got to observe were definitely in, in highland environments, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, their their relationship with temperature is is notable as well. Uh, in one case, you know, we got to go out and see these tortoises out there uh, in this uh, 
uh, this this uh, this highland area, and uh, it was early enough in the day that some of them were essentially sleeping in. They were still bedded down in the mud, uh, mm. where they could uh, they could you know keep their temperature relatively stable throughout the night. And some were already getting up to begin their um, their day of eating. Uh, others just weren't quite ready yet. Oh yeah, and I've read that these tortoises just love the mud. Like they oh, love yeah. to get in the mud puddles, and they'll just hang out there for days sometimes. Yeah, so, so you'll see them trooping around, and yeah, on one level, they kind of look like bulldozers because they're just covered with mud, and of course, they've been eating, too. There are lots of pictures. You included one here of one with just this spectacularly messy face from all the, the vegetation and yeah. or fruits it's been consuming. It's just smeared all over. It's like one of those gross baby pictures where the baby just looks yes. like they've been face down in a plate of spaghetti. Yeah, and their face, the face of the, the, uh, the Galapagos tortoise does kind of look like, like old baby. Um, so yeah. it, it, it really matches up with that. Well, but, uh, there are other differences in the environments that might explain the, the different body plans of these, uh, tortoise species. So, uh, a lot of it probably has to do with vegetation, right? Domed tortoises tend to live in more lush highlands with dense undergrowth and, uh, a creature in Laughlin write quote, the domed shells smoothly rounded as they are may prove adaptive as the tortoises move tank like through dense plant cover, which is of course also the animal's food source. On the other hand, saddle type shells with a large forward notch can actually become snagged in low vegetation, impeding the movement of the tortoise. Saddle shells are not very adaptive in low dense vegetation. So it's just going to be easier to move around with a more rounded shell uh, in, in all that thick brush in the, in the upper highland forest regions. Whereas if you had the saddle shell with the, you know, the upturned sort of collar in the front, yeah, that'd just be getting hooked on stuff all the time. And I mean, they are little bulldozers. They can tear stuff up. Like, for instance, uh, you know, there are going to be limits. Uh, they could, you know, be, be slowed down or I guess stuck in vegetation. But uh, to, to give one example that I, I was told about, you have, again, individuals who are still ranching uh, in, these, in these parts of the highland. They have cows. Um, they need to contain those cows. Uh, but if there are going to be tortoises moving through, they're, gonna, they're just going to take down your barbed wire fence or your, your whatever kind of fencing you have. So in many cases, they'll have the fencing, they'll have this big gap at the bottom that will allow a tortoise to move through because that way you still get to have your fence and the tortoise won't, won't tear it down when it makes a beeline uh, for whatever, wherever it's going. Yeah, fortunately, the cows can't crawl under <laughs> yeah, I guess not. I, I, uh, it did raise some questions like, well, can the, yeah, can the cow, uh, what about really short cows? I don't know. But apparently it works. But the final thing with the difference between the domed tortoises and the saddlebacks is probably food sources as well, because uh, again, the domed ones are going to be munching on a lot of, you know, lush, uh, low lying vegetation. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that's just, that's okay to have a normal kind of dome, uh, dome shaped, uh, shell for that. But the saddleback tortoises, which live in the more arid lowlands are going to be eating cacti often tall cacti that they need to reach up to get to. And so the upturned front of the shell allows more room to raise the neck. And of course, of course, as I said as well, they've got longer necks and longer legs to help reach. Robin, I think you said you, you observe stuff about uh, those cactuses sort of reacting to that by growing taller and taller to try to escape the, the munching tortoises. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's remarkable to see because yeah, here's this, um, 
here's this cactus that has uh, yeah, evolved to thrive alongside the tortoises and it ends up yeah it ends up feeling more like a tree than a cactus if that makes sense mm-hmm. um yeah uh, just r- remarkable ecosystem all right so there you have it uh hopefully we gave just a, at least a nice snapshot a uh, nice overview of the galapagos tortoise uh there uh, obviously there's a lot of research out there about these creatures so uh perhaps there's uh, there's some details that uh, we we managed to leave out if you think that we left out something that is particularly exciting then write in we'd love to hear about it we'd love to see it for ourselves and uh, to share it in a future listener mail likewise as i mentioned in the first one if you've traveled to the galapagos islands if you uh if you live uh, on the Galapagos Islands or uh, or are, uh, uh, an Ecuadorian, uh, we would also love to hear from you. We love your thoughts on uh, these fabulous creatures that we've discussed here or any of the other creatures of the Galapagos Islands. Uh, I, I'm always excited to hear more. Just a reminder to everybody that Stuff to Blow Your Mind publishes its core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have listener mail episodes on Mondays, a short form artifact or monster fact episode on Wednesdays. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks to our audio producer, Max Williams. If you would like to get in touch with this uh, with uh, this podcast, with us, uh, with feedback in response to this episode or any other, with a suggestion for a future episode topic, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.